Hi, everybody. Welcome to Kip Nugget, episode five. Five? <laughs> Senko. My to name Kip. is. Okay. Oh, by the way, everybody, Kip is Dutch for chicken. So our podcast is literally called Chicken Nugget. Chicken Nugget. For those of you who are wondering what Kip Nugget means, Hagana loves chicken nuggets. He thinks that they are the best invention ever. Hence the name. Okay. My name is Callie. I'm one of your hosts. I'm here with my husband, also known as Sagana, your other host. Mostly known as Sagana. Mostly, <laughs> mostly known as Sagana. So, oh, before we get started, let's get back into our sponsors. We, we can't forget. We're so grateful to our sponsors. Tuck Bar and Yoga, the premier boutique bar and yoga studio in the Philadelphia area, currently closed due to COVID-19. Bar that burns. Yoga that melts. Thank you, Tuck. Okay, Hagana, what do you want to talk about today? So today I want to talk about a New York Times op-ed that I read uh, this morning, and it was called Disdain for the Less Educated is the Last Acceptable Prejudice. And it was talking about how the, no, let's just call it, what is it? The ruling class, the political ruling class is overwhelmingly highly educated, um, well-off people from, usually from very wealthy backgrounds. And it wasn't always that way. Um, but right now, today, two-thirds of, of the American workforce is, uh, does not have a college degree. But 100% mm -hmm. of senators and 95% of the House of Representatives have a college degree. And a lot of those people have advanced degrees as well. So is, and, is that really a fair representation of the people? And I think one point that uh, the author made in this op-ed was that a lot of our legislators are Ivy League educated. So not only are they, you know, privileged in the sense of coming from economic means, they also have attained the sort of elite status of the most prestigious universities we have in the, in the United States. So are they out of touch with, with those who, who they represent? And the reason I wanted to talk about this article isn't just about what the content of the article, which is, is very interesting in my opinion, but just it's a good entryway, I think, into talking about education in general. So my day job, I work at an Ivy League law school, and I'm basically, you know, in the business of selling elite education. So it's something that I have a certain degree of exposure to. And... It's, it's a, and especially with that recent college admission scandal where a couple of celebrities were, or celebrity parents, or, I guess, were, I think, convicted. And actually, some of them are going to jail now over bribes, essentially, to college admissions officers for their kids. Clearly, this is a highly desired, I guess, highly valuable product, you know, higher education, especially elite high, higher education, Ivy Leagues being at the top. And it's something that there's a limited quantity of. And in America, listen, if there's one idea that America is supposed to be about, it's meritocracy. It's the idea that maybe it's not a fair, completely fair playing field, but you compete and the best are supposed to, the most worthy are supposed to rise to the top and we're supposed to at least have a fair game. And I think what has been exposed by the college admission, admission scandal and the more scrutiny that all of these Ivy League education or the Ivy League schools get is that this isn't necessarily a level playing field at all. Yeah, I think we should, I think we should frame this out in terms of our backgrounds. I actually went to the law school that Hagana now works at, and I went to that law school on a full scholarship 
merit scholarship, not financial. I know some of you would would question that. Um, while, of course, I would have needed a full financial scholarship um, as well. But I don't think those exist for law school, do they? No. No. Not really. Actually, no. you know what? This is actually, this is this particular topic, I think, would actually benefit from us talking about ourselves a little more than yeah. usual. Yeah. Yeah. So let's do that. So Hagana. I think you're the more interesting person here. So why don't you tell us about your background? What schools did you go to growing up? What colleges did you go to? What was your sort of childhood like in terms of education? Sure. Uh, I don't know if I'm the more interesting one, but I knew from about age six or seven that the best thing that I, as a Korean child, could do for not only for my family, but for my country and for the world and for everything is go to Harvard. Like Harvard is the, I don't even know what the equivalent is to something else. It's like being a basketball player and going to the Lakers or being a baseball player and go to the Yankees or winning an Olympic gold medal. It's, it's like the ultimate goal of every. Let's, let's put this in, let's put this in Midwest terms. I grew up in the Midwest. It's like playing big 10 basketball. Okay. Go ahead. Agana. Oh, is so the Big Ten's the good one to go to? <laughs> Big Ten is, yeah, it's an elite conference. Okay, okay. but go ahead. Yeah, so I, I literally knew from age six or seven. Uh, that's actually when I moved to the United States. I started, I was born in Korea, but I, I you know, moved to the United States, or my parents moved to the United States. I went to American public schools from first through sixth grade, and then my parents... And those public schools were located where? In Virginia Beach, Virginia. Okay. And... Uh, in seventh, starting in seventh grade, my parents moved me to a private school, Norfolk Academy, because they had a reputation for being a much better feeder to the to the elite schools, and they wanted to maximize my chances, obviously, of going to Harvard. They would settle for Yale or Princeton, right? Uh, but but really, you know, Harvard's kind of like the brand name thing that everyone goes for. Uh, everything, all of my efforts as a youth were directed towards improving my chances of getting into Harvard. So how much did you study for the SAT or your college entrance exam? Sure. So I got my first SAT prep book in seventh grade. And <laughs> I, I, I'm i pretty sure I, like, the, I don't know. I forget what year I was in. Maybe that was like 95 or six. I, I'm pretty sure I completed, like, page by page, every single SAT prep book out there that was available at the time. So from seventh grade until... The, the PSAT, I think, was in 10th grade. That doesn't really count for anything. I think 11th grade is usually when you take the real SAT. And so I had five years of preparation for, for the SAT for this test. Uh, Callie, how many years did you prepare for your college entrance exam? I was told by my high school guidance counselor that you couldn't study for the ACT. So I took it cold. I still did pretty, I mean, kudos to me. I still did pretty bomb. But... No, I, I didn't take a single practice test. I took the PS, like whatever the mandated one was. Like yeah, your the soft- PSAT in 10th year. Yep. Yeah, the, the sophomore year exam. But no, I didn't study. I didn't prepare. I didn't do any of that. Um, so let's go to my experience. So um, I was raised in rural Illinois. And um, and I went, to, I went to a parochial school. I went to Catholic school. I went to a public um, preschool kindergarten beside the point. But my um, the majority of my elementary and middle school years were done in Catholic school. So I went to church twice a week 
during school time, and I learned a lot about the Bible. Um, I, I can still recite the Lord's Prayer. Thank you very much. Actually, my memory is pretty good, and I, att- I attribute that to learning and memorizing prayers. For those of you who don't know, I'm not Catholic now. I'm not religious. Anyway, then I went to a public high school, um, and I will say that my high school was shit. <laughs> it was shit. Seeing what I see now, living on the East Coast uh, near the main line, the main line in Pennsylvania is kind of Silicon Valley. So, was, was that school that are we the Haverford used to? The Rad. Oh, the Haver the Haverford, Haverford school, school or something. The or Haverford just... school. It looks like, and that's a private school. But even the the public schools on the main line, they look like college campuses. The amount of resources that go into these schools. I took health class in a trailer. I I ha- I took like cooking classes. I had foods one through four. I had one AP class. It that didn't was... even work because you're a terrible cook. Okay, okay. Hagana does all the cooking, but um, but Hagana, how many advanced placement classes did you have in high school? AP classes. Let's see. There was AP Bio, AP Calc, uh, AP. Let's see. AP Chem. AP U.S. History. Okay, you had a lot. Oh, yeah, I, the, I had yeah, one. <laughs> I had one. There was one offering, AP U.S. History, and it was my favorite class. Um, but I, I, w- I remember in, in my, where I grew up, in my town, and maybe this is just my experience, and as an adult looking back on it, it um, you know, I, I have, I'm coloring this with a different lens, but people were not seen as intellectual you, your value and your worth was based in your body. So I grew up not studying for the SAT, not playing classical piano, but I grew up playing basketball because that was the way that I could go to college and, and be able to afford it. So there was a lot of pressure just in terms, you know, for you, there was a lot of pressure to get into Harvard and have a perfect SAT score. For me, the pressure was performing in that you know, athletic environment. But I didn't even know people who were, you know, doctors or lawyers or consultants or engineers. I had no idea what they, what they even did. Um, Yeah. I remember you telling me that like the richest person in your neighborhood was the one that owned the McDonald's or something or the the car dealership or something. Well, yeah. Um, So yeah, I think the, everything was framed in terms of laboring for your for your money for your worth and and you see people who identify so much with physical labor myself included I mean my whole identity was wrapped up in basketball that when I stopped playing basketball I didn't know who I was even though I was a very intelligent kid I always got straight A's and I didn't even try like it was just like I didn't even spend any time on it. I was always doing conditioning and strength work and basketball and all that stuff. Um, but you see men in my in my hometown who are injured on the job and they become so depressed because your identity is so wrapped up in and your value is so wrapped up in what your body can do. If your body doesn't work anymore, who are you? Um, and I think that's a sharp contrast of our, I mean, 
I went to Hagana's Norfolk Academy reunion and I saw it looks like he has like Johnson and Johnson auditorium, like literally Johnson and Johnson built them like a performing arts. Like what? They had like an orchestra room. Like, I don't even think we had like a music place in my high school. Like the, the amount of resources and granted Hagana went to a private school. How much was tuition for your school? Back then, it was $4,500 a year. This oh. was beginning in 95, 6, maybe? I think that the, the Haverford School on the main line next to our one of our yoga studios, I think that's closer to like 40000 a year. Yeah, I mean, granted, this was you know, almost 30 years ago. Right, now, so now, what is it now? Can you just Google it? Uh, I'm yeah, just curious. Keep, keep talking, yeah. But, um, but yeah, I think that, and, and just continuing on with my education, I went to... Um, a public college. I went to a directional state school and, um, and I went to, I chose a school based on basketball. Um, you know, I, I, and granted, is this a failure of parenting or, um, you know, high school really, gu- guidance counselor? Cal- Callie, why didn't your college guidance counselor or your college admissions counselor tell you about this? I, I have no idea. Like, because you didn't have one. Yeah, like, uh, no, we had one. To be clear, Norfolk County had a dedicated, we had a guidance counselor for like high school stuff and then oh. a college admissions, oh. a separate college admissions counselor. Oh, yeah. No, so we had like a part time. She was my English teacher my freshman year. And, um, and then she like part time would talk to you about, you know, any issues you were having or whatever. Um, but I specifically remember asking the question about college entrance exams and the process and like affording college. Cause that was my big concern. And I had, you know, looking back now, knowing what I know now, I could have gotten a full academic scholarship at a lot of schools. And I did get um, a full academic scholarship offer at one of the other state directional schools, but I didn't apply. I applied to two schools <laughs> like I, I applied to two schools and they were both for basketball purposes. Um, but yeah, our guidance counselor, she was the person who told me you couldn't study for the ACT, that it was not um, an exam that tested what you knew. It's an aptitude test. So you don't need to study because it's just testing you based on, you know, your aptitude, your ability. So you don't have to have um, any preparation which is just flat out wrong for those of you who are parents who are going through this process guys you can study and you can it's a it's it's just it's a skill you have to learn it's the just test like athletics imagine if there was a test that said how high can you jump or how fast can you run and then someone else tries to tell you oh you can't train for that right you're it's, just supposed to be naturally <laughs> no, right it's it's a joke obviously right um so so i chose schools based on basketball and i um i went to school for basketball and I finished college in three and a half years, even with a transfer with a 4.0, because it was a, it was a joke of a school. Like, I don't mean to belittle that, but like, it certainly wasn't rigorous in the intellectual sense. Um, so I was able to get by pretty easily. Okay, so now I think it's fair to say that you are well aware of the full range of types of schools tiers of schools, quality of schools, et cetera. Right. And just to bring it back to this article for a second, what do you think of the fact that 
all of our legislators, I mean, it, it's essentially all of our legislators right. are chosen from among people that go to these very, very elite schools. And and just, just to fast forward a little bit, in your, you, you, know, you went from the state directional school to an Ivy League law school. And so now you have plenty of experience with the type of people no, that turn into legislators as right. well. Right. But let's clarify how I got there, because I think this is an important point. So for me, I never knew that this existed. I thought that's like I was always told by my, you know, family and by my high school people, whoever they are, let's call them counselors. That's very generous. But I was told that calculus is calculus everywhere. Science is science everywhere. So your education isn't going to be different based on where you go to school. Accounting is accounting everywhere. This is blatantly false. I graduated from my state directional school making $27,000 a year working for a startup wellness center where I met Haganah and where I was exposed to people who were not like me, who were from different classes, who were different races, who were educated, like actually that had marketable skills. Um, and I had a woman who was an attorney, sort of, she was a personal training client, sort of take me under her wing and she was the first person who told me, hey, you're really smart. You can do other things. How old were you there? Was 20, 21. 21. Okay. 21. And, and it wasn't until I met Haganah, Haganah really broke it down for me that, that you could sort of prepare for these entrance exams, especially for graduate school, and that there was a lot of money at stake, and that with my 4.0 GPA from undergrad, I could potentially go to an Ivy League top 10 law school for free. And so I studied the shit out of that LSAT exam, and I took every practice test there was, and I was consistently getting perfect scores before I took the exam. So fast forward, I get through law school, what kind of people did you meet in law school compared to undergrad? Oh my God. It was like a whole different world. I was, I will say, I knew that I was able at this point and I was 27 when I started law school. Um, so I had significant work experience before law school. So I had come into myself a bit. I was pretty self-assured, but I will say meeting kids who went to Exeter and Princeton. You'd never heard of, I didn't even know what Exeter, Exeter was. Um, and who had gone to Princeton, it is intimidating to say, oh, I went to Northern Illinois University. I remember my first, um, I after first year, I worked for a big New York law firm. And they didn't even, they, they had you fill out a profile for the, you know, the employee internet. And they didn't even have a drop down for my college. They had to add Northern Illinois University. <laughs> I was literally the first person who's ever worked at this very, large, prestigious New York, you know, white shoe kind of law firm. Um, and I can certainly assure you that no one else from my hometown has worked even in a, an environment like that. Um, so, so yeah, I can, I can tell you that it was humbling, but, um, the, the satisfaction of law school exams being blind graded. So I knew that there was no, you know, potential for my background to hurt me. While I will say, I know I had to work harder than everyone else because I was playing catch up. I hadn't taken any pre-law courses. I hadn't been in a competitive 
intellectual academic environment before. So I know I worked harder than everyone else. Um, and I like to think I just work smarter because it's not like I worked a lot, a lot, but I spent time and I was present. Okay. Don't roll your eyes at me. You know, I did. Um, but the satisfaction of getting really good grades was really fun. <laughs> um, okay, okay. Enough of that. Okay. But back it to, was, no, back to the, but, but I will say that for the people that I, I straddle these two worlds, right. And my Facebook feed shows that I have the, the, the people who aren't as, you know, haven't gone through these advanced degree programs and maybe haven't worked in these sort of corporate settings. And then I have my, you know, professional and law school friend group and they battle on Facebook and it is, it's weird because my law school friends are like, who are these people? Like, because there, the race comes up a lot and, um, and politics comes up a lot. And I will say that for the folks who comment on my Facebook feed from my hometown, they are typically less inclined to be open-minded to other ideas. Um, they are quick to shut down conversations. Whereas I think Again, this is a generalization. There are certainly exceptions. Whereas, generally speaking, my um, law school friends are are generally more open. I'm not sure they're open to the my hometown friends' point of views, but at least they're open to seeing data and seeing you know hearing someone else's opinion. So I think it's really interesting to see those battles play out. And when I read that article today, what was your takeaway from that article today? So there were a lot of takeaways. But one was that governing, right, governing politics, what do you want to call it, public service, is very, 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 it's a very different function than the other professions that, elite institutions or highly educated people tend to do. Like if you're going to be a doctor, right? You don't want a diversity of educational accomplishment, right? There, right. No, you, you want the best. You want a specialist. Yeah, you want you specialists. Want, you want highly right. educated people being doctors. Governing is very different because I personally feel like the most important thing in good governance is good intentions. And good intentions is not taught by elite educations. It. And what I, what I mean by good intentions is, I mean, going into government with the idea of truly being a public servant and making choices that benefit the most people, not that are just self-serving. Because sometimes, and one thing I hate about the arguments of why we need to either pay people more or whatever is, oh, the best and the brightest won't want to be president or senators if they don't get paid this much or if they don't have all these other opportunities. And it's like, no, if, if that's how someone's intrinsically motivated, like they need that whatever, they're not going to be a true public servant. Anyway. So, so I did very much sympathize with that part of it in the but sense that just, you need the people with the right intentions there. Yeah, no, And I, education is no guarantee of that. I, I agree. And to give an example of of a, a work a working environment that doesn't adhere to that rule you just propose federal clerkships so law school graduates 
typically if you go to a top tier law school, you have two paths. You have three paths. The first path is for those who really okay. have. This is going to be way too long. No, no, no. no, no to you, abbreviate this. Okay. You we, go we with the money. About, listen, you go talk, with no, the listen, money, no, big law. Hold on, slow down. Okay. We talked about how 100% of senators and 95% of people from the House of Representatives are college graduates, right? Overwhelmingly, Supreme Court justices are from exactly three, three schools. schools. Three, three schools. schools. Three schools. Harvard, Yale, Stanford. Yeah. And if you don't go to one of those schools, you have almost no shot of ever being a Supreme Court justice. Now, actually, okay. You, I mean, this is no, this is news to you, but what do you think about that? Like, you've been through law school, you've been to an elite law school. And what do you, do you think there's value in having such like stratified legal minds being the ones? Okay. So not saying, not saying that, especially in the past when certain whole populations of folks were left out of law school admissions, women, black people, like it's a Sandra Day O'Connor. Didn't she work as an unpaid Intern yep. for three years after graduating second in her class at Stanford. Yep, so she graduated second in her class to Rehnquist, by the way, another Supreme Court judge. But right. she worked, I think, over two years as a volunteer intern at the prosecutor's office or something. Right. Before she finally got her first paying gig. Right. So it's been it's a more recent phenomenon. We still have lawyers who are working who were not accepted into schools that they should have been accepted into. They were left out of the process. But let's assume now that a good LSAT score and a high GPA means you get into HYS, Harvard, Yale, Stanford. The problem with that is for folks like me, had I not met you and I would not have gone to the law school I went to, I wouldn't have gone to law school. And if I did go, I would have gone, you know, I would have just assumed, oh, I couldn't really study or whatever. And I would have gone to like top whatever, 100 school and taken a scholarship. So you're leaving a lot of those people out of the equation because to afford an LSAT course, those are typically like, what, four grand to take an LSAT prep course? It is, but you know, no, I mean, I want to think about the problem more like, yeah, no, you, right, right. Okay, so... Like, what? okay, what is the function of the Supreme Court? They need to because, really... No, I understand what you're saying. Okay, so because their docket is not specialized, the Supreme Court has to hear cases on ERISA. They have to hear case criminal cases. Patent law. Yeah, patent law. Nuts. So you have to be... You have to be able to grasp really difficult concepts. I think in that situation, the filtering mechanism that HYS gives you, that you are the top of the top of the top, assuming all other things are controlled, yeah, that makes sense. You're getting the top legal minds. Would you like to have more diversity of thought? Sure, considering some of them graduated law school in the same year, they probably took the same professors. And and law school is such a formative process. It teaches you how to think, and you are, in a way, indoctrinated by your professors. I'll always remember one of my criminal law professors who does a lot of um, public interest work. He said, if we had equal enforcement of drug laws, we would have police officers in dorm rooms here at Penn. So I that sticks with me. I hear that. I hear his voice in my head today. So, of course, you have... 
professors influencing these judges decades later and there's just not a whole lot of diversity in in that thought um and some of the smartest lawyers i've ever met went to whatever law school so having a hys degree doesn't necessarily mean that you are fit to sit on the supreme court so what do you think would be different with the supreme court if you had like remember the lincoln lawyer that movie with yeah. Matthew McConaughey or remember um what was that movie with uh George Clooney where he was a, a lawyer fixer I don't know it was some kind of pharmaceutical case that but anyway wait was listen, that up in the air no not up oh. in the air no but listen like if you think of like the tv lawyer like the courtroom brawler that we as children or people watching pop culture like th- those types of like kind of you know just like knockout fighting type lawyers that like are gritty like wouldn't that bring some kind of like value that i think well, is just completely missing from of course and this ha- elitist thing and though? and hagana like even looking at my facebook feed let's say i didn't grow up where i grew up i would be completely isolated from the problems and issues of the working class and the poor I would be in my little bubble, living my life, getting my nice salary and, you know, listening to other very educated people spout the same ideas. So to really have, to have the capacity to even understand what it's like to be poor, I think would be beneficial for someone who is determining some of the most important cases in our society. So I don't necessarily think you even have to have a brawler lawyer. You just have to have someone who is in touch with poor people who's been there. Like I like someone who spanned classes and not just someone who was raised, who went to Exeter, who went to Harvard, who went no, to but Harvard. Think about all those people that are wrongfully convicted, right? And then right. teach themselves the law in the prison law I, library. I know. And that's do their own appeals and then they're exonerated. I know. Like, I know. How is that not the resume of a Supreme Court justice? No, I I completely agree with you. Um, but I will say, just given the breadth of the docket, you you want someone who has the ability to learn. And obviously that person that you're talking about has the ability to learn. Right. And you don't need nine super technical like experts either. Right. No. You know, like you, well, cause honestly, let's be real guys, the way the Supreme, it's not like the Supreme court justices are doing the, the real legal work here. They, they hire clerks. Um, and their clerks are the ones who are digging into case law, who are presenting the research to them. Um, so you're relying on clerks from those top 10 law schools that we, that we talked about earlier. Um, and again, those clerks, typically speaking, like I was, I'm, there were a few other folks in my law school class who were, who grew up poor, but the vast majority did not. So they just don't even have the understanding of working class people you can try to understand and everybody does they try to understand but it's not the same as no, living it's it different and and so i mean i think a lot about alexandra ocasio-cortez yeah and 
you know, when I first heard about her, I was a little bit skeptical. Like I thought she was one of those like kind of like not celebrities, but, but 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 like you know the idea. It was like a Cinderella story, right? Oh, a bartender just runs for office and then is elected and takes out this incumbent. But then like I think about the real concrete value that she's brought as a congresswoman from a completely different type of background, right? Like when she first was, I don't know if the term is inaugurated or whatever, but when she first talked about going to the Kennedy government school at Harvard and then being taught how to manage and use lobbyists, she's like, wait, what the hell is going on here? We're not being taught how to be like governing people or Congress people. They're just t telling us like how to just like, you know, prioritize the different lobbyists. And, she's and like, how to ridiculous. fundraise, and like, yeah. I mean, that blew my mind. I never, I mean, I should have known probably, but that just hearing it from her, like as it happened, she was just tweeting this stuff and putting it on Instagram. And I was like, why hasn't anyone done this before? And this is something that would never happen with someone who went through the normal. Right. Know. Because it's almost like a, it's, it almost seems to devalue the institution and the office, right? When you really open the curtains. Yeah. Like when you really open the curtains, and this is true for anything. I mean, you know, I get really cynical. The more I learn about anything, the more shit it is. Um, and yeah, I think when you shine a light on that, you have this interest not to share those things as an elected official because you're so excited. You just got elected. You're in this new role. You go to your legislator school and guys just... So, you know, judges do this too. Judges go to judge school. Like you have to learn how to do the job that you've just been elected to do. It, 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 you, you hesitate to share that sort of information. So I applaud her for doing that. I mean, it's, it's so important for the public to understand that <laughs> legislators don't work for us. They don't work for us. And I think that's the crux of the problem here. It's not discrimination or um, prejudice against those who aren't well-educated. The problem is money and politics, period. Okay, so to bring it back full circle, clearly being highly educated is no defense against those temptations. Right. Like, if you or I were elected, like, congresspeople or something, like, I'm sure we'd be, you know, subject to the exact same temptations as everyone else, which is why I, you know, my one of my first thoughts when I read the article was, yeah, you can't teach or train or screen for the qualities of true public service, of putting the interests of your, you know, your true neighborhood common man, all that well, ahead of. Well, yeah, but I think that that's ultimately the issue, right? The folks who are able to scrape and and get elected electability does not make you a legislator. You and I both know that sometimes elections work out in the total opposite way they should. I mean, even for us, we'd both be really great public servants. Like we would read, we would read and we would understand, but we would never do it because we don't want to go through that process and we don't want to put ourselves through the rigmarole of, you know, being scrutinized for every word. We couldn't do this podcast. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it, it takes away so much freedom. We're not willing to give up because we love our lives. But we're excellent. We would be excellent public servants. 
And so I think that I think that ultimately because of how our elections are structured and the fundraising mechanisms and the way money trickles down from, you know, the party leaders, it it leads to the Jared Kushners of the world being elevated and not the Haganah Kims. I mean, I, I'm not going to... Maybe you think that it would be good legislation. I, I'm not going to make that claim. No, but I'm not going to make that claim either, but we would have the good intentions that you were talking about. I guess that was my point. Yeah, and they always say, like... Or they always say... But, like, you know, the best leaders are sometimes reluctant leaders, right? Yeah. Um, there are people who feel like they ha- are forced into doing it because no one else can do it better, at least ideally, right? But then what really happens is the people who are interested in all the trappings and rewards of political leadership are the ones that actually pursue it. Yeah. I think that the one thing, the one thing that I would want to fix, the one thing that I think is so effed up about our society is that your zip code dictates your future, where you're born. Nobody wins. I mean, not everyone can win the parent lottery and be born on the main line and go to Radnor High School where one of our friends went to one of the high schools in on the main line and tourists literally came to her parking lot, her school's parking lot to see all the kids fancy cars. Like that was a regular thing. Like there's just so much money and resources wrapped into one area. Whereas you go to, you know, city schools and you don't see that and you don't, I mean, we don't have real socioeconomic mobility in this country. We like to pretend we do. Ooh, the illusion of feeling like you could get anywhere. I'm honestly one of the few people who I know who has been able to elevate themselves from XYZ point in life to making a nice life for myself and creating wealth for our family. And that's only because I met you. We have just enough mobility, social mobility that most people know someone who knows someone who did right. it. <laughs> right. But you have to be exceptional. It's not like, you know, generally speaking, better people do better. No, it's no, like it's... the absolute best people will, yes, do better than the mediocre people that were, you know, whatever. But... Right. But it's, it's anecdotal. And the real data shows you that most people where they're born determines where they're going to end up and how they're going to end up. And that is a sin. Again, I'm not religious, but it's a sin. How do we structure our resources and allocate resources so that all kids don't get the same? I have no idea. I mean, it this, makes is, this, no is, this is something sense. for definitely another episode. But, yeah, we can talk but, about this later. The educational inequality and just, you know, I'm going to guess most people who ever listen to this are probably in a decent position, right? Yeah. The amount that the people that are currently privileged would have to give up for that to happen is huge. All those people at all those, you know, the good school districts. Let's say you just took away all of it and just said nationally. Nationally. Every single student will be have the same amount of funding dollars formula. to them. Yeah. It's going to be insane. Yeah, no. I mean, there's a, there's a nimbyism sort of there's nimbyism involved you don't want yeah sure it sounds great in theory for all kids to be treated the same especially when you look at the people who want to protect life so much you know they're very pro-life they want to save kids why not save kids in this way (laughs) like the kids that are living 
and help them get out of the poverty that they're in. Help them not be, help them not rely on school lunches to be fed. I mean, that part is, I mean, I can't even believe we still charge for school lunches. Okay. If we're really the richest nation on the earth, like every single child should have health insurance until they're 18. Every child should have guaranteed meals until they turn 18. Like that should just not even be a question. There should just be public kitchens. If you're a kid, just go there get your food like, yeah or just you literally be at, like a developmental disadvantage because no and you are at a developmental are. disadvantage nourish i mean and we have food deserts and and the, you know the kids who are on reduced lunch get the peanut butter sandwich it like singles them out that literally makes me i i feel nauseous when i think about that because you know as a kid, how much it means when your shoes are from Payless and everybody else is wearing Nikes, you're made fun of. Like, why would you, why would you help other kids identify those kids who are on reduced or free lunch? No, it's absolutely it's, disgusting. It's like I, it is, I wasn't one of those kids, but occasionally I forgot my dollar, and so I would get, the, and I still felt shame, like getting just the peanut butter sandwich because I forgot my dollar, and they're like, okay, now you get a peanut butter sandwich. Well, everyone else gets tacos or pizza or whatever you know it's it's, it's disgusting that it we do really that is disgusting especially because we understand that kids get bullied for being poor if your uniform is dirty or your clothes have you know you wear the same shirts mm-hmm. like i remember growing up i would wear the same shirts when i finally got to go to public school i would wear the same shirts and i remember all the other girls commenting no, I, I still remember the yo mama jokes about pay less yeah, yes like yeah, they're like kids are brutal and to to make life hard harder than it already is if you're a poor kid it's just i can't hagana if we ever get rich enough like really rich i would love to just fund all the like pay off all the school lunch debts and just fund lunch for kids that should truly be a national government it really is guaranteed meals for children until you turn 18 like right what the fuck if you vote food is cheap food is so cheap it's we subsidize corn like literally it's so cheap i don't understand i don't understand the disconnect if you're voting pro-life but you don't want something like that like take care of the kids just take care of the kids and you want you want kids to develop because then they become taxpayers who pay into the system you want success you want kids to be successful and cutting off their legs when they're in first grade because they're not getting proper nutrition is just the dumbest thing ever. Okay, let's wrap this up. I know we've been talking for a lot and for a long time. And honestly, why do we go so dark in these podcasts, Sagana? We need know. an uplifting podcast. We didn't podcast. really get to it. Maybe we'll get to it in a minute or two. But one thing I did want to talk about was one other point that this article that we started with makes <laughs> Oh, the is, article. Back to the article. That it's just a given over the past 30, 40 years that – we're going to outsource all manufacturing to cheaper countries. And that mainly, not, not that primarily hurts the American labor, like the one you were talking about, right? Like you identify with physical labor, physical ability. And if you're disabled, that destroys your identity, all that stuff, right? Yeah. But the idea is with your hands and your hard work and your sweat, you can, that's part of the American ideology, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, reality is, is it's just cheaper to send it to China. Like everyone sends it, MAGA hats are made in China. It's whatever, it's not even a question. If you're gonna make something cheap, you make it in China or somewhere else. Our solution to that has been 
okay, give everyone college or get tell everyone not give everyone college tell everyone to go to college <laughs> tell everyone to go into tell debt tell everyone to go to debt to go to, to college. go to college and does is that going to work like what's happened with that no i think no of course it's not going to work of course it's not going to work and that's that additional demand without any connection to the real cost has led us to the student loan crisis we have today um but i mean you and i both know that like our plumbers probably make more than we do. Like if you're a skilled laborer and you have, you're an electrician, you're a plumber, you're booked for weeks. In Philadelphia, we had, um, we had to do a build out on one of our studios about two and a half, three years ago. And uh, we got out of the union labor requirement and we called this. It, the job was about 30 K. It was like 30, 40 K just to do a portion of the job. We had to hire separate electricians and other, but whatever, that's beside the point. We had so many people who were general contractors or contractors say, Nope, not doing that. Not worth my time. 30 K. No, I only, I'm only going to do jobs that are over 300 or I'm only going to do jobs that are over 100 to have the ability to turn down work. That's a luxury, right? You have to be busy. You have to be in demand to be able to do that. And you're setting your price. Like you and I both know, no, Hagana, you don't know because you don't pay bills. You don't even know what bills cost, but our plumbers are charging us a buck 80 an hour, a buck 20 an hour. That's good money. And and so if we can have sort of more tradespeople, more skilled laborers, that's helpful to yeah, our okay, economy. That's helpful. But again, back to the article, one of the problems with that is there's now like people with college degrees look down on people. There's like a social price you pay for not going to college. No, but do you, I don't actually do that. I don't have that bias. So I didn't understand that part of the thing. And I think it is because of my background. I know most of the people I know growing up didn't have college degrees. So I don't have that. Mm, okay. That, would, you, mm, would you elect I'm, a plumber to the presidency? No, but do I not, do granted if a plumber had the ability to articulate his ideas, had great policy ideas, et cetera. Sure, oh, I so would basically if he could pass as a college graduate. No, but I think the difference is I think the prejudice lies in not those people who don't have a college degree. I think again, I'm speaking generally here, the disdain or prejudice I have against people is those people who aren't open-minded and who aren't open to new ideas or, you know, reading research or looking at data. And generally speaking, there's a correlation between those who don't go to college and that sort of behavior. So that's what I look down on the closed mindedness, the, the inability to continue to learn as an adult. Okay. That's actually a really good point. Cause now I'm thinking about even at Penn law, like the professors that I really admire, they are still learning. And, if you have been in that environment, that means like, okay, let's, you're, let's say you're like a 35-year-old PhD candidate. That means you've spent like almost all of those 35 years around people that you admit are smarter than you. 
and then you keep absorbing new right. information from those people. Right. I mean, even for us, we continue to learn. Like we learn for this podcast. We'll be like, oh, let's look up the rules related to when we were talking about the um, mortgage crisis from t- 2008. We wanted to look at what the products were today that the financial services industry was touting. And now it's what CLOs, collateral loan obligations. But like we are still interested in learning. And, and I think that's because of our education and that's because of our environment and because of each other. Like we like to talk. So you're saying talk. that the real value in education is the knowledge that there's always more knowledge out there. Yes. And I think that you, the, at least again, my experience and what I see on my Facebook feed is that those people who haven't furthered their education in, you know, by going to college, that's a default way to do it. But like you said, the prisoner who reads the law and, you know, learns how to file for expungement and that person would, I would never harbor any sort of bias or prejudice against because clearly that person is willing to learn and willing to continue to develop as a human being. Whereas I think other people stop. They think, oh, my education is done. And also, you know, they're doing physical jobs sometimes that are tiring and exhausting. Who wants to like go read after you've done, you know, 10 hours of cleaning houses? I've been there. You don't. So I think that that's, that's what, where the bias exists. I think that that article was flawed. His, his premise and his conclusion were both flawed. I don't think that there's discrimination against those that are not college educated. I think it's against those who are closed minded and who refuse to continue to learn. I mean, that makes sense a lot in today's context with relation to like the COVID crisis. Mm-hmm. Like it blows my, okay. So we just watched two, I'm not gonna get into politics here, but we just watched the DNC, the RNC, and in a sane world, there would be very little disagreement about what to do about COVID. You just listen to the fucking experts. Right. <laughs> just about you. You just let the smart people who deal with this their whole lives and spend their whole careers doing this just right. do that. And I would expect there to be two different proposals for how to rescue the economy. Right. And that's what it should have been. That's what the past few weeks should have been. Agreement on what to do with the COVID. Just let the dark doctor, you know, whatever epidemiologists handle it. And then you can disagree about how to economically solve this problem. But we didn't have that. And yeah, no, it makes sense. Like there is, I mean, it, go, it goes back to that quote by Asimov, right? I'm going to read the whole thing because I have it in front of me. Oh, God. There is a cult of ignorance in the United States. And there has always been. The strain of anti-intellectualism has been a constant thread winding its way through our political and cultural life, nurtured by the false notion that democracy means that my ignorance is just as good as your knowledge. Amen. Amen. My ignorance is just as valuable as your knowledge. Amen. That is the fundamental problem. I have nothing to say that's better than that quote, so I'm just going to give up Yeah, right let's, let, that's good. That's let's good. end there. Thank you very much, Tuck Bar and Yoga, for your sponsorship. <laughs> Bar that burns yoga that melts. <laughs> <laughs>